Hi. Hello, by the way. Hello. 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 I'm Hello. sleepy. Yeah. I'm sleepy. I have not been doing a good sleep. Oh, uh, no. You need to do a good sleep. Sleep's important for sleeping. That's what you need sleep for. My understanding is if you don't sleep, you, it, it does do bad things. Yeah. It do bad. Yeah. The problem is, sometimes when I sleep, it do bad things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get you there. Yeah. Now, I've talked about sleep paralysis before. Yeah, you know, I've, I've, I think I've mentioned it on Podquisition. I've certainly talked about it on Boston's Favorite Son, uh, where I wanted our good friend Jonathan to be a sleep paralysis demon, uh, the friendly face of sleep paralysis, because it currently don't fucking have one. I have on occasion woken up after falling asleep with sleep paralysis, can't move, um, all sorts of weird, scary things that I'm seeing and hearing. Very, very frightening. About all I can do when I'm in that state is make a noise not a dignified one because i've got no control over my my physical faculties yeah. so the best i can do is go ah, like that and if i'm lucky you know phoenix will be around and they can sort of get me properly awake and um in control of myself now that is scary to do mm. that uh, i have started to do it the other way and I've determined it's scarier. Waking up with sleep paralysis, bad. Falling asleep with sleep paralysis is like inviting the devil to live in your anus. And he's brought <laughs> his biggest fork. It's not good. Couple times now, my body has fallen asleep before my brain. And it mm. is waking up and being unable to move is one thing. Suddenly being unable to move while awake is yeah. horrifying. Now, it's, like I say, it's happened a couple times, mostly sort of the body will freeze and then like this like roaring noise, like a, a background staticky noise almost, mm. will just like fill my head. Um, that's how it started the other night, but it, it progressed uh, to all sorts of things. I had enough control to like jolt my body to like like just do something to physically move it to get that sense of control but it would quickly fall asleep again and every time it did the noises would get worse and it was reaching like full-on auditory hallucinations i somehow was able to despite my body not feeling like it was mine i was able to force myself onto my feet and go downstairs because phoenix was downstairs and I made it to uh, the couch and just sort of flumped and then spent the next several hours with auditory hallucinations. Hours. Drifting in and out of consciousness. My dreams and actual, like, reality, like, becoming one thing to the point where, like, Phoenix was next to me trying to do a protect. And then I fell asleep and in the dream they were on the other side of the room and then I drifted back in and they were still there like next to me and and I didn't know what was going on I started to hear voices making vaguely chattering is the word that that Phoenix said I kept saying because uh, you know a lot of it's wiped from my memory but vaguely alien menacing chattering not even threatening <laughs> towards me but just so wrong that it was very scary I became terrified of being near an open door. 
the, the most striking one was when my eyes closed and I felt Phoenix get closer to me and put their face next to mine and then determined that couldn't be possible. It instead had to have been a cat monster. It had to have, that's when it got too far. That's when it got too far. Brain got silly. It was some sort of, almost like those demons at the end of Ghostbusters. Those two dog demons, but a bit more cat-ish. But then brain determined, can't be a cat demon. Must be Phoenix. Then I woke up and Phoenix hadn't moved. So it had gone from Phoenix moving to cat demon to Phoenix moving to Phoenix having never moved. And that is why I am tired today. As a person who has on occasion had the sleep paralysis, night terrors whatnot stuff go on, for, for a thing that, like, as humans, like, roughly once a day, we do this thing, and, like, it's one of the things we're most practised at as humans. You'd think it would be hard for a human body to fuck up. I'm gonna lie down and switch off for a bit and then come back. Yeah. But, like, when it goes wrong, oh, it, it sure can go wrong. I used to be the sleepwalker. Like, I used to sleepwalk chronically. Mm-hmm. To the point that... As a child, we used to live in a house that had, like, the whole downstairs at night had, like, a burglar alarm system, and you had to, like, turn the burglar alarm off at the bottom of the stairs before you could go anywhere else downstairs. I slept, walked off of the top bunk of a bunk bed, down the stairs, put the code in to turn off the burglar alarm, slept, walked into the kitchen. Brilliant. All while, like, completely non-conscious. This is... Bodies... Bodies are fucking bonkers. Absolutely. Ridiculous. I don't want to get religious or tread into that, but the idea that this was done on purpose, the idea that I am going to, and I'm not necessarily talking about the Christian God. It could be any, it could be Odin, right? The idea that Odin sat there thinking, right, I'm going to make this uh, cheeky little fella here. Um, Two legs, two arms. Um, it'll have sex with the thing it pisses out of. That's fine. No questions there. Sleep paralysis, yes or no, Thor. It don't make sense. I don't know how that helps. We evolved that. It does. Evolution is a lie as well. <laughs> it has to I be. Feel, I feel like sleep paralysis <laughs> is like, oops, error code. Couldn't couldn't work out what was supposed to happen here. Yeah, I mean, possibly. Just play a bunch of garbage data and hope it it sorts itself out. (laughs) There is a possibility of that. Like, having experienced it from the front end instead of the back end, it really, the the best way to describe it was my body fell asleep, but my brain didn't. And I guess the overall machine was like, what do I do with that? What the fuck do I do with that? Oh, I know. I'll make them hear aliens and see cat monsters. It's fucking terrifying. Sleep paralysis is fucking scary. It is. Don't... There's no way you can actually opt out of it. But don't have sleep paralysis on LSD. I can say this here. I can't say it on Twitch when I'm talking about uh, things there. I I wouldn't recommend that one. That sounds like a... That sounds like a... Like a, like a bad time. Yeah, that one I did mention on uh, the Boston's Favourite Sun podcast once. Uh, the, the words I used to describe the entity that was in the room with me was malice fucking incarnate. Uh, don't do it, kids. Or if you do, phone a friend. 
that's the message of this <laughs> this podcast. It always has been. Eight years ago, oh. I was like, I'm going to do a video game podcast where the message will be, if you have sleep paralysis while on LSD, phone a friend. Welcome to welcome to Podquisition on that note. Yeah. Uh, ostensibly, it's a video game podcast. It has all been building up to warning you to, you know, call a friend if you have sleep paralysis while on LSD. I mean, does that mean we can stop now that we've done it? Well, no, because, like, you know, we've done, like, the main aim, but we do still have to finish the side quest that is talking about video games. That's true. We've hit our main goal, but we've still got contractual obligations to fulfil. Post-game content. Yes. Right, like, we, we can't stop until we get the Platinum Trophy, which does require us to, in perpetuity, be aware of video games. Man, we've oh, just got to know they're there. we got to know where they are and what they're up to. It's fucking annoying. Well, I've played some of them this week. I don't Ooh. know if the same is true for the two of you, if you, if you played video games this week. I've played some. I've played yeah. one, yeah. I've played a couple. Um, You know what? I'm, I'm going to jump in and oh, talk about... Do. about one or some I've played. Um, I'm going to talk about the category of video game I've played, and then I'll talk about specifics. Sorry, don't mention cats. It's a very sensitive subject right now, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I've been playing this week uh, some games from a company called Incube 8, who produce modern games for the Game Boy. Oh. Uh, and these are like... New original games made to run on original hardware, so you can play them on an original Game Boy, or, like, they sell them in a couple of different ways. You can either just buy a ROM and play it on whatever device you have that plays ROMs, or you can buy, like, a physical cartridge, or you can get, like, nice boxed copies with, like... Do you remember when Game Boy games used to have those little plastic protector for just one game that was a little plastic box that opened oh, up? Oh, sure. Yeah, I still have some. Yeah. I've got... Uh, my Final Fantasy Legend 2 is in one. Yeah. So you can get one where it's like, it's it looks like a Game Boy box and it comes with the cartridge in one of those and you get a little manual and stuff with it and it's like, yeah, a nice little package they've put together. So I've played, I've been playing three new Game Boy games this week and I've not put a huge amount of time into them, but I want to start talking about them. I'm going to start with like the one that I have the least to talk about and sort of escalate my way up today, I think. So I'm going to start by talking about one called The Machine. The Machine... It seems to be a sort of top-down RPG about a society of abstract little people living in essentially a big city in a metal box on wheels. It is a game that seems to, at, at least in its like opening hour or so, be about trying to replicate the mundanity of life working within a very flawed system of capitalism. In that, like, the opening of the game is, hey, it is the day where you have to take a test that's going to determine your entire prospects for life. It's going to determine what you get to do with life, who you get to be. You, you overslept, you forgot to study for the test. And you are given one of two life choices you can make at the start of the game. And it seems like they're both active choices that will, like, properly diverge what, what the game will be. Which is, you failed to get the test results you needed... You either go work in a factory doing manual labour, or you become a cop. Those are your two options. I was able to choose not to be a cop, and I'm glad that that was an actual choice and I wasn't just going to be forced to be a cop. And the first, like, few cycles of this game are literally just take the train home to your crappy apartment that you share with a man called Foot, who I will best describe as you came home from your first day of work and he'd eaten all of your food from the fridge and then complained to you that the fridge smelled bad because he'd left his rotting food in the fridge despite having eaten all of your still-in-date food. 
you, you go home to your crappy apartment to go to bed, to go back into town, to go do a mini game that is sorting boxes down conveyor belts into the right sections they need to go into, to get paid, like, two bucks, to go to the pub, buy a drink, lose a dollar on a horse race, get the train back home, go to sleep, do it again. It seems like there is probably some escalation of where this is is sort of heading, and that, like, it, it seems like a lot of this is about trying to find solidarity in, or at least with, with this sort of, like, having taken the path of, of like, going and doing the manual uh, work in a warehouse, it seems to be leaning towards, like, finding solidarity with your fellow workers who are not being paid properly, who are basically being forced to be, as the name of the game might suggest, cogs in the machine. I'm intrigued where it's going. The reason why I have the least to say about this right now is it's the one I've put least time into so far, and that is because while I have confidence it's going somewhere, it is a game about the dull cycle that people have to be forced to, like, just repetitively do the same thing. Like, and it's trying to get across a tone, but it is right now creating a tone that makes me feel like I'm doing the same thing over and over in a mon in, in that kind of mundane loop. I'm not sure how long that's going to go before it changes, but it's it's a choice that hasn't made me like th of the three games I've been I've been playing, this is the one I'm least excited to come back to and put more time into because I know I kind of have to get over that that hurdle. And that is always going to be a tricky thing to balance in a game where that's the kind of tone you're trying to get across. Really interesting pixel art, like for a game that is about sort of dull, drab survival on minimal resources, it does some interesting things visually with the hardware with that, but I'm going to come back to this and I'll probably talk about it more next week. The, the machine, right now there's a little bit of a hurdle that like I have, the other two games I have on this pile are, are more immediately catching me and that has sort of slowed down me making progress in this one. What about you both? Uh, who's who's got a game they want to talk about? Uh, Conrad, do you want your? I've got two, and Conrad no. has one. Do you want to slot one. in the middle or go now? I'll slot in the middle. That's fine. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, in that case, I will. I guess I'll. <clears throat> excuse me. I guess I'll go with the um, bigger of the two games in terms of contemporary relevance. Uh, I played Dead Island Two, which I didn't even know was out. Uh, on Friday, I somebody alerted me to that also, and it came out of nowhere. And and the thing that startled me more than the fact that Dead Island Two came out is that they said that they liked it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've seen mixed things about it. I know it's out, and I haven't bothered to touch it yet. <laughs> I I honestly I can't see myself doing it if, it, if I'm totally frank. I, there was probably a time ten years ago where I would have given a Dead Island Two a chance, but I'm I'm. I have decided at this point in my life that mission-based first-person open worlds are simply not going to be for me. And I just, I'm done there. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Is it good? It's basically that. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's basically that. It's, <clears throat> yes, yeah, fine. It's a less janky dead island that's trying to be a bit more self-aware and trying to lean into humour a bit more, but nowhere near enough to... So it's got this kind of almost half-hearted tone. It's not even trying to live up to the trailer 
for Dead Island 2 in the mm. same way that Dead Island didn't try and live up to the trailer. Both games being misleadingly marketed with very different tones. I'm writing the review now and I sort of point out that juxtaposition where the first Dead Island had that probably one of the most memorable game trailers ever. The um, zombie attack on that family mm. played in reverse. Like, it's been... God, maybe 10 years since I watched it, but the music of that trailer is still in my head. I mean, I could still visualize a lot of it. Yeah, very memorable. And then you get a sort of, well, a tech land developed, hack and slash, sort of like a very janky, stripped down borderlands. Um, but without the humor, without any real tone, it's just here are zombies, here are a bunch of flat characters, fight them. And it was fun. I liked the first Dead Island. It was a, a solid game, wasn't brilliant. And uh, Dead Island 2 kind of marketed the opposite way. That trailer, I think, not as memorable, but still pretty memorable. Uh, the uh, fella doing the marathon with that bomb song, I'm the bomb man, about to blow up, friends. And, you know, showing him sort of jogging while like, all hell's breaking loose and then he turns into one and he's still jogging it's a really cool trailer actually yeah really fucking fun and you can tell with dead island 2 that they they did want to make it more light-hearted but they didn't even try and do actual comedy i'm trying to find the right words to describe it it i don't know if it knows what it wants to do because it knows it doesn't want to be serious but it's not leaning into the funny stuff it's got Playable characters who sort of, they're way more voiced, way more vocal than the first one where each of the characters had like a couple stock phrases to vaguely agree or disagree with the NPCs. Whereas this one, it seems like uh, certainly the character I picked, um, she's got fully voiced dialogue responding to everything in her own way with her own character. And the quips get annoying because they're not hilariously written, but they are relentless. And the storyline, for the most part, is kind of serious, with a small s, small s serious. It's not grim and miserable and po-faced, but it is not a laugh a minute. The actual narrative is a, a plain, straightforward, here are zombies, your character is immune, they want to get in touch with um, the authorities to use their immunity as a, a ticket out of L.A., which is called Hell A in this game. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's the kind of, that's basically the, a good way of describing this game's approach to humour. It's, this city is called Hell A. That's a bit subversive. Anyway, moving on. Here is a knife that you could cover in acid. The gameplay is very similar to the first Dead Island. You've got guns and they work decently enough, but for the most part, you want to, Focus on your melee weapons. You got your baseball bats, your swords, your knives, your maces. And there are a couple of slightly more exotic ones, you know, your hammers with uh, weapon mods like last time. So you can, you know, make a hammer that's electric and can deal electrified status effects. Uh, all of that's there. But my God, it gets old after a while. I've been enjoying it. It's good in the same way the first one was. It's decent hack and slash but it hits that one tone both in terms of its story and its writing and in terms of its gameplay it hits 
one tone, one note, and it stays there for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And while there is some perpetual sense of mundane satisfaction in chopping zombies' legs off or punching them, like punching holes through their faces to see the other, like what's behind their heads through the hole. It's the kind of game I've been playing. I was describing it to Fee the other day, the video game equivalent of when you've eaten too much food and you're like full up uncomfortably. That's how I end my time with this game when I play it. I conclude each session feeling like I'm full up of game and just couldn't possibly eat another bite. And that's what it's like, but not in a good way. In, in a, I've just been sat here spoonful after spoonful after spoonful, like I am when I very genuinely eat my feelings. It's, it's in that category of game where I ain't got a lot of good to say about it, but I haven't got anything majorly bad either. It's enjoyable enough. I will give it a bit of standout praise for the gore effects, though. They're lovingly crafted. They did uh, a surprisingly good job. I don't know how dynamic the gore is. I'm willing to bet not massively. I'm willing to bet they've got a handful of, like, Lego brick gore effects to stack onto zombie bodies. But it really does feel, when you're done mangling a zombie, it does feel like the result of everything you hit it with. It's not that no two zo zombies die the same. A lot of them do die the same. But every now and then I'm like looking at this thing with an eyeball hanging out and its jaw hanging off, like hanging by one hinge, having been smashed that side of the face uh, to have sort of physically believably done that. And I am kind of impressed with that. The way the zombies melt if, you, uh, if they die with the caustic status effect, sort of melting from the point where you hit them. What made me think it's uh, not super pre-baked, but might have some dynamism to it, is a zombie was attacking me, and its eye was hanging off by a thread, and then it fell off with the exertion of what it was doing. That's the big standout. It is impressively gory. It's, it's got that kind of pre-Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson splatter sense to it. It's gross. Not as deliciously, glisteningly gross as, like, Capcom's, like Re Resident Evil remakes. But in terms of just, I fucked that thing up, it stands out. It's a good game to play if you want to, like, just look at a pile of corpses you made and think, wow, I did a number on that. Just so you can just imagine how Jack the Ripper must have felt before he took a part on uh, MTV's Road Rules in 1998. <laughs> yeah, that's Dead Island 2. That sounds like about what I expected out of Dead Island 2. Yeah, if you absolutely yeah. loved the first one and Dead Island Riptide, which I re I liked the first one well enough, there was something about Riptide yeah. I fucking hated. To say nothing of that weird, cartoony-looking third-person one they did, that was fucking dreadful. But yeah, this it's more Dead Island, but kind of with a bit of a charm lost, where they have kind of polished it a bit. It doesn't kind of have that unassuming, janky charm. It is a better-made game, but it is not. It's just not as fun as, as the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Kramer? What have you been playing this week? Well, we've been talking a lot about Suda lately. 
Yeah, yeah. Between last week's episode and the episode of Trash Girls Diaries that released on on the feed here last week, or this week maybe, I can't remember when, it has gotten me into the mindset of revisiting Suda's games just generally. And in specific, there are a number of them, about half of the, like, major releases that you can say Suda has his stamp all over this uh, that came out in the Mm. West that I haven't played through to the completion. I've played them all. I've only finished like half of them. I'm starting with the first Suda game that I didn't play to completion. Okay, that's not true. I never finished Flower, Sun, and Rain. I should do that too. I started that um, because I've been on that Suda kick too, like like, like you mentioned. And... um... Just to briefly say, I, I played until I got into the hotel and I've not picked it up again. And I'm pretty sure that's what I did also. Yeah. Um, and, and I have a copy. I have a physical copy of it somewhere. I have, I have physical copies of all of these games. <laughs> like, I was truly dedicated to purchasing Suda51 games. So anyway, the first one on the list is, is Shadows of the Damned. I played it through entirely this week. Uh, may I ask quickly how you played that? Um, how I played it? Yeah, because I I can't find it digitally. Did you just like get like an old copy or? I have I have a copy. Um, yeah, yeah I, have, okay. I have a I have a copy of it. Um, now that's not how I played it, but I do have a copy of it. Gotcha. Yeah, I played it emulated on PS3. Okay, cool, cool. That worked really well. Uh, the the PS3 emulation on it is almost spotless. Nice. Desperate to replay it. Yeah, there might be like an audio clip here or there that doesn't come through right, but other than that, it's it's pretty spot on. Um, it is the most accessible and video game video game that Suda Fifty One has ever made. I think. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a close run thing between that and Lollipop Chainsaw. Mm. It's been so long since I played Lollipop Chainsaw that it's it's challenging to even remember it on that level. Yeah. But Shadows of the Damned, I and and, and I may, maybe this will hold true for for Lollipop Chainsaw also ultimately, I'm not sure. But when I walked away from Shadows of the Damned, I knew that I will not care about it in a month. I will never think of it again. It is mm. a tremendously video game, video game. And that's fine. Like, it's fine. It's, it's fun enough. Uh, it controls very well. The third-person action gameplay is good. I like the limited guns in that you have basically three different guns that you get through the course of the game, and then they just get improved. They just get better. And I like that as a person who has a tendency to pick one weapon and go with it through the entirety of a game, not giving me, you know, half a dozen guns to muck up my inventory or overcomplicate things suits me fine. Like that. But it feels so pedestrian. It's not that it's boring. It's that there's nothing to get me to latch on and think think about it to any depth the narrative is totally comprehensible and works 
and and I don't have to think about it once I'm done. I remember there being a lot of Evil Dead references. There are a lot of... Well, there's a whole stage that's an Evil Dead reference where oh, you're, yeah. in, you're in a cabin. Yeah, she's acting like a dead eye, right? Yeah, they've got a Henrietta coming up from the mm. root cellar, and, and yeah. Like, uh, it, it definitely definitely has some cultural reference and touch points that it works off of. I like a lot of how the narrative is delivered. I particularly like how they sort of provide exposition on the various um, major villains in it. In particular, the Stinky Crow, which um, the, the way they do these, they have these sort of like children's stories in hell. You know, these are what children's stories in hell are like. And they are all, you know, very sort of kind of standard tropey things until the end where you find some, you know, sinister conclusion that is both fitting and, you know, ironic, but kind of funny. And the Stinky Crow one is great because it's the one that is delivered by um, your character, the uh, uh, whatever his name is. See, I'm already forgetting everything about it. The only, <laughs> the only bit I remember in terms of story is when the gun goes big and he holds it between his legs and he goes, "Suck my big boner." That's oh. the bit I remember. Yes, the big let's boner. talk. Let's talk about the big boner for oh, a yes, moment. Oh yes, please. Mm. Yes, let's talk about. I the speak big no boner. other language. The big boner is the one singular example that I can point to as possibly being the part of the game. The part of every Suda game where he says, isn't this a shitty game thing that we're doing? Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. Being the thing you're satirizing, which I've complained about many times. But I don't have that problem with that. Actually, I like that. Mm. That's something I want more of in games because I am not of the mind that every game, A, needs to be for everyone, or B, needs to be fun. Not every game needs to be fun. If we're going to make the argument that games are art, then we need to make room for there to be art that can be examined from a wide variety of perspectives. Yeah, but like, there is definitely a difference between that and the thing that occasionally you'll see, which is the anti-smart for pointing out Sure. I call it the rats in the basement problem. There are way too many action RPGs that give you a mission to kill rats in a basement and then basically look at the camera and say, doing that is boring and has been done to death. And I've seen it so many times and I'm like, if it's boring, why are you doing it? And if you've got nothing interesting to say about it, especially why are you doing it? Don't just tell us something shit and then do it for a joke because you're just being shit say something with it do something with it don't just be the thing you're saying's rubbish but that's why i think suda does it well generally speaking because he does commit and there's none of that winking to the camera uh, in terms of look how bad this is it's just mm. there and you need to deal with it on its own terms or not. Yeah. Because I 100% agree with you. When you get that sort of smug, you know, like, hey, look what we did. Wasn't that dumb? Yeah, no, fuck that. That's a waste of my time. But if you're going to commit fully to that idea and put me in a place where I am forced to 
think about the thing that you did that was bad, then I'm sort of, I'm more interested. Sure, if you're going to do something with it, you know? Right. The big boner <laughs> is, I think, an example of this kind of thing, but it is such a minor one in the sort of context of Suda and his games. But it is a throwaway thing that is just sort of forced in there to have a different bit of gameplay. It's not particularly fun. It's rather tedious, in fact, because the cutscenes in Shadows of the Dam are, uns are unskippable. And so when you fail one of these, you then have to go through the whole fucking thing of going over to the phone and waiting for the cutscene to play out before you have to do this tedious combat encounter again. And the reason I think that this is an instance specifically of Suda saying this is fucking nonsense is that it only comes up once. Now you do it like four times in the one time it comes up. But it is one isolated level right in the very middle of the game where you stop and do this fucking stupid thing. And then it is immediately followed by the one other... Well, one of two other sort of gameplay mode variations, and that's if you even count the you're being chased by your zombie girlfriend bits. The other one is this side-scrolling shoot-em-up thing, and that one does persist. That one reappears several times. The big boner feels so fucking out of place as a result, because its function, if its function was to break up the gameplay and introduce some other thing that's sort of like, all right, hey, you're going to take a breather from your third-person action combat and, and do this other thing. They could have just gone straight to, let's do this side-scrolling shoot-em-up thing. They didn't have to do the big boner at all. Yeah. But it's my least favorite Suda game so far out of all of the ones that mm -hmm. I've finished because it's too much like a video game. It just feels too polished, too clean, um, it's, it's got the style, it's yeah. got the sense of humor, but it does not feel like a game that has anything to say, uh, which is not what I expect. If I recall correctly, Shadows of the Damned and Lollipop Chainsaw were released not too far from each other. Not too far apart. Yeah, like I, I do wonder if, you know, after having done games the way Grasshopper does games for so long. Mm. Especially since Shadows of the Damned was published by EA and Lollipop Chainsaw, possibly Warner Brothers? I believe so, yeah. But yeah, big, you know, Western publishers. From what I understand, there, is, there was some interference on the part of, of EA that was um, displeasing to the Grasshopper team working on the or game. Or if not interference, maybe an attempt either to make a point, as they like to do, or uh, to genuinely try and sort of do some serious games to quote-unquote go legit in the eyes of uh, the average sort of customer. It didn't take. Well, based on, on what little reading I've, I've done about it, Shinji Mikami has gone on record saying that Suda was pretty gutted. Ah, well, there we are then. Fair enough. Yeah, I think that some compromises were made in that development yeah. that um, produced this game. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if those same forms of compromises uh, were made in the case of Lollipop Chainsaw. And that's, that's going to be the next thing I get around to on this mad journey that yeah. I'm on. Um, mm. But it's, uh, it's a shame. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, like, 
it's not that I don't like the things in it. But I, I, I'm, I'm not going to remember it. Because it's just... I've played it a thousand times before, I feel like. Uh, and then and, and there's... Apart from the big boner, which if I think of Shadows of the Damned going forward, I'm going to think, God, that section sucked. I thought I'd get tired of the dick jokes. Eventually, I just sort of ignored them. You know? And I'm a, I love a dick joke. I make them all the time. Uh, this is packed deep with them just so many dick jokes and 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 if that's not your your brand of humor you will fucking hate this i I don't know i'm just i'm just i'm bummed i'm a little bummed like even the 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 action is so enjoyable moment to moment but completely disposable just gonna be gone from my head yeah that's a shame yeah i loved Shadows of the Damned at the time. I don't know if my opinion will have changed. My progress has stalled as I've like focused on stuff to review and all of that, but very much like you, I'm sort of very grasshopper focused. I want to replay Shadows of the Damned, Lollipop Chainsaw, and maybe if I can steal myself, give Killer is Dead another fucking go. That's going to be the one that is really going to test it's me. It's going to be the I... toughie, isn't it? It's yeah. not going to be good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I gave it an eight back in the day. And in the context of video games, I probably would give it an eight. Mm-hmm. It, you know, if I you know, if I were just looking at this as a video game, that's an eight game. If it's a pseudo game, it's like a six. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that is a, a an interesting sort of thing to bring up, like when we look at games and what we want from games. Um, you know, people talk all the time about objective reviews and. Mm-hmm. What is more useful when you approach a game critically like that? Are you approaching it from, I want an objectively good game, or if you're buying a a game directed by uh, Suda51, do you want to be like, no, I want this to be obtuse and weird and sort of shit, but oddly compelling? Like Weirdly, the the closest thing I can compare this to that I had this week is I went and watched, um, they did a 30th anniversary Mighty Morphin Power Rangers film this week, and I had a very similar like approach to that, which was like, I don't want it to be good. I want it to be a very specific flavor of like making it kind of worse in some aspects will make it better as the thing it's trying to be. And sometimes that's, you know, you want that specific flavor of jank for better or worse, because that's what you kind of want out of the thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I guess it all comes down to expectation, doesn't it? And yeah. how much that plays into what, you enjoy in a game i don't even know if if even merely expectation i think that game review game criticism writ large suffers from a problem of being entirely rooted in consumer capitalism yeah that's well yes you know (laughs) absolutely right like and and so we often have a tendency to to shove aside the products that don't fit neatly into that mold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 say, well, it doesn't do this enjoyable thing, therefore it's a failure. Well, not necessarily. Why is that that way, do you think? Yeah. Is there yeah. a reason for it? And sure, sometimes it's just logistical. Yeah. And sometimes it is on purpose and it's shit. Yeah. Like one of the most damning, I've said this for like 
when, when talking about the game in the past, one of the most damning criticisms I've ever had was when I said that Too Human perfectly realized its artistic vision. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. I can even, from their perspective, to a certain extent, understand that. Like, I, I truly can. If they wanted you to feel like there was a consequence for failure. And if I'm honest, there's no greater consequence for failure in a video game than wasting your time. That's, that's effectively what it is. Now, they have found a way to really sort of like grind that in your face with that extensive cutscene. Because you are, in theory, going to have to come from a checkpoint and replay. Or maybe you're not. Maybe that's just when you're done. And, and this is your, your reward for having played the game as you get the 30-second cutscene of dying. I don't know. But I do think that there is something interesting about that conceptually. Is it enjoyable? Absolutely not. Um, but I would, I would point to Pathologic as a game that is not enjoyable, really at all. It is a bad time. But is it a bad game? I think that you would find if you look at the discussion around it that most of the people who acknowledge that it's not fun to play it also believe that it is a good game. Hmm. And I think that's interesting. I think that's worthy of examination and, um, and, and interrogating what it is that we want when we play something. And that's not to say that there's anything wrong with wanting something that you just shut your brain off and you get, you know, positive feedback. For fuck's sake, we all love vampire survivors. Yeah. It's not a, a shortcoming of the genre necessarily to be dumb fun. But at the same time, I do think there needs to be space to sort of evaluate these things like, okay, but if I hadn't spent money, if I hadn't wasted a bunch of time, you know, if those things... If I didn't view those things as contingencies on which my enjoyment of this could be set, what is this? What am I experiencing outside of those boundaries? Anyway, that's sort of the, the frame of mind that I'm approaching all of these pseudo games from and, uh, and, and trying them again. Because I, I do want to start thinking about games more and more as objects of art absolutely um it's it's a great frustration not just in games criticism but of my own writing even um mm. that and i don't know if it's just because it's how i came up in games media or if i'm just not clever but when i write reviews which i love doing i love writing game reviews um but i very much approach them as as products well, and that, but that's that's the role of games media, generally speaking, yeah. because they are outlet. They are an extension of the public relations arm of the industry, right? In a lot of ways, like not not through their fault, not through their intent. That's how they've been seen, for sure. It's how they're treated historically by the industry. But I, I also think there's something to be said for the fact that I think a lot of people genuinely, that is what they want out of them. A, a lot of people yeah. only come to them yeah. because, like, you know, if you're not a writer yourself, you're probably coming to a lot of game reviews for, I don't know if I want to play this product that I have to will have to spend money on and then invest my time into. 
I want to know if this is a product I should do that with. That is inherently the purpose they serve for a lot of people who will read them and that. And there's nothing wrong with it. No, but that is inherently a factor in how you write reviews Mm -hmm. often. Yeah. I think, well, I think it comes to be a problem when it's done to the exclusion of all other criticism. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's where I'm at with it, where I focus so much on reviewing them as products. I want to spend more time on the other sort of side of it. I try and do that. I try and, in my reviews, focus a little more on, like, I try and have some discussion of themes, which is more than a a lot of reviews, um, do mm-hmm. or need to do it's not a criticism sure. of, of the average reviewing and then of course there's the simple fact that a lot of what gets reviewed isn't worth looking at as any more than a product no it doesn't has, doesn't have that that depth that need that ne- that necessity for examination yeah. I, yeah i would agree i mean most products are but well most art is trash like let's just be honest oh, about yeah. it most art that is produced the vast overwhelming majority of it is garbage and we have this uh, issue when it comes to looking back at art. And, you know, oftentimes we, we draw comparisons to, you know, oh, things used to be so much better. Look at all of this great shit that, that came out. Well, but that's only the stuff that, that got remembered. Yeah. That, that you're just, you're, yeah. Only, you're only seeing the best examples. And in the moment, in the present day you get exposed to the entire range. I mean, provided you're open to looking. So there's a difference there. Yeah. I think. Anyway. Yeah. That's 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 where I'm at with Shadows of the Damned. It was it was fine, but I'm not happy. <laughs> yeah. Uh cool. So I'm gonna try and rattle through a couple of other games nice and quick because we can go for about an hour already and there's still still stuff to get through, so I'm gonna try and be quick. Um I played a couple of other games on Game Boy uh, that I'll... Uh, I got some things to say about. Uh, I started playing one called 2021 Moon Escape, uh, which is a... Uh, the best way I can describe it plot-wise is you, you've you essentially gone in, like... in You know in Star Wars where they get the Death Star plans and they got to rush them back to be like, aha, we have the plans to stop the big war in space... That's you. You've got the, the the other side of this big space wars, like, ah, you've got the war plans, rush them back and we can win the war. And then something happens and you crash land on a on an alien planet and your ship's damaged and you're like, cool, I gotta get my ship fixed ASAP so that I can go get these important war plans over in time before things go wrong. Mechanically, it is a top-down game that most closely feels like it has things in common with, like, top-down 2D era Zelda games. The main difference being that your weapon is a gun that at least at the start of the game only holds three shots in it max at any one time. There are things you can pick up to recharge it, but because you don't know when the next one of those will be, it sort of creates an interesting relationship between you and your ammunition in that there are a lot of enemies early on that you don't strictly need to kill and that you can find other ways around. And you end up having to sort of get into this mentality of ammunition is a really limited resource and I should only be using it if I have no other way to get around this interaction with this enemy. Um, And that scarcity does create its own tone that I think works very well with you being crash-landed on this mysterious planet where you don't know what you're doing. There is some fun dialogue 
you are traveling around this this alien planet with essentially your ship's AI hanging out in in your spacesuit, and I enjoy their banter back and forth. Like they have a good, uh, amusing back and forth that isn't it isn't too overplayed that it gets annoying, but it's enough to have a game that's set in a like desolate space where you don't know what's going on, but to still have character and personality uh, sort of carrying you along through it, which is nice. I've so far encountered one environment that feels almost like a like a Zelda dungeon, but a bit smaller in scope, which was neat. It seems to be less about like collecting new items that will actively help you progress and more. This dungeon environment has a unique gimmick around how you navigate it, and here is like essentially a new tile piece of some kind that might show up in the dungeon and use that to work out how to navigate this sort of puzzle space. It's neat. It's got some interesting ideas. I like a lot of its quality of life stuff it's got going on. Like, when you pull up the in-game map, uh, as you've been sort of wandering around, not only does it show you where you are now, but it shows you a quick preview of where you were last time you opened the map and the route that got you to where you are now to sort of give you a refresher of, oh, that's how I got here, which is really helpful given that this is one of those move between different screens as you hit the edge of the screen kind of games. It helped me to much better lock in my head my my path and where I had and hadn't explored. The other one I want to talk about um, is the one that I have the most to say about because I, I've put like an hour and a half into this game and I anytime I feel like I understand what this game is, it keeps adding more on top of it. So this game is called Dango Dash and you play as a mid-twenties something person who's unemployed, doing nothing with your life. Your mum's like, hey, I want you to I want you to move out. You're doing nothing with your life. So you go get a job at your uncle's dumpling shop. And initially, I thought I had a handle on this. It's like, okay, cool. It's a cute little simple 2D side-scrolling platformer game where you're trying to deliver dumplings to people and you've got three little pips of health that sort of represent how good a condition your dumplings are in by the time you deliver them. So like, ah, if you get there with full health still, the dumplings are in perfect condition. That's that's great. And if that had been it, I'd have been like, yeah, cool. You, you, you got a cute little idea here. It plays well. And then you go out on your second delivery and your second delivery is like, hey, go deliver these dumplings to a man living in a tent over there. He's not in the tent, but there's a sort of building, a sort of cave nearby. So you go check the cave. And now the game is a top-down 2D Zelda game. Like, it's proper, proper full-scale Zelda dungeon you're exploring. And then you get a weird magical scroll and learn about the, uh, the, the weird elaborate lore of the Sky Islands you're living on and the, the war that seems to be raging between the inhabitants of these various islands. And then it becomes like a dungeon exploration game that's almost like Metroidvania-esque in its design as you go through this dungeon under your mum's house trying to kill all the the rats in her basement. And then it becomes an open-ended RPG with like, go. there's no clear plot, just go talk to people and find quests and there'll be things to do. It keeps throwing lots of new genres at me. The thing is, each one of them feels very well put together. It's not feeling like I'm being rushed through these things and like, oh, we, we just threw in another mechanic and didn't really worry about whether it works. We just wanted to throw stuff at you. All of these mechanics felt natural to where the plot was going, but I keep thinking I have a handle on what this game is and then it throws just another 
well fleshed out genre of of like classic Game Boy game at me. I'm intrigued. The world building's really interesting. Um, really nice color palette. Uh, all of the individual elements, none of them have felt bad yet. They've all felt actively like good executions of the genres they're trying to replicate. I'm just very curious how much more of this there is. Like, I'm very curious how much it has front-ended this throwing of genres at me, and how much more, how many more ideas they have to keep up, like, can they keep up this kind of pacing? It is more ambitious and, like, elaborate than I anticipated, and this is one of those three games that I am most interested to put more time into over the coming week. Um... Yeah, what about either of you? Have either of you played anything else before we move on to the news? Played one more thing. What'd well, you play? I also played a bit of the uh, Advance Wars remake, but I only did the tutorial level, so I uh, need to play more. Um, but I really did like Advance Wars back in the day, yeah. uh, so I've been looking forward to it. But I have been procrastinating on my reviewerly duties because the Final Fantasy Pixel remasters are finally on the Switch. Oh, yes. Uh, they've been on PC for fucking ever, um, and I was really wanting it on the Switch because it's the Switch. I want yeah. things on it. Um, and yeah, yeah, it... it uh, what was it, Friday or Tuesday? Last week, anyway, the Pixel remasters came, so I picked those up. Um, that is Final Fantasies 1 through 6, uh, all of them visually overhauled in Unity and uh, given a new musical arrangement. You can switch to the old graphics and music as well, but the uh, at least the one I've played, the new versions of the, the tunes are really good. But I've only done one so far at the time of talking because it was the one I really wanted to replay because I had really good memories of replaying the PS1 version. Uh, so I've been playing Final Fantasy IV, that's the one mm. with Cecil in it and Rydia. You know, you start off as uh, the baddie, the Dark Knight, and then become a paladin. And I've never beaten the final boss of that one. Fucking awful. Uh, I'm going to do it this time. It's like when I said I'd finish Grandia and didn't. I will <laughs> definitely beat, oh, what was he? What was it called? Zeramus? Or something weird. Some villain that just turns up at the last minute after you've been fucking chasing uh, Golbez around. But I'm having a really nice time with it. I don't have a lot of fond memories of the past overall, but there are certain games where I'm like, I get good feelings thinking about that, and Final Fantasy IV is one of them. It's just a charming little story with uh, really nice music. And one of the first... I don't know if it was the first Final Fantasy to do it, but you don't even see it a lot these days with Final Fantasy either. But the rotating parties where you don't really choose your own party characters they come in and out as the story demands so this character might join you for a dungeon then leave then it might come back and it gives you a sense of dynamism that makes up for the lack of choice you don't choose your party makeup uh, you just sort of play with the hands you dealt but that's kind of interesting in its own way and you don't see a lot of it but I think it really helps tell a story at times you know it's that whole thing of you know player choice and open world and linearity and what's best at telling a story and I talk about uh, narrative direction a lot when I talk about game stories and how a game setting its own pace can be important and you can often only do that in a linear fashion 
because if you put a player in an open world and say do this at your leisure sometimes you can't nail that sense of, of building towards a plot point and the same can be said for parties uh, being chosen for you versus making them up a character that joins you for a bit then goes away then maybe comes back uh, as a sort of welcome familiar face you get that feeling a lot from final fantasy 4 and, and i enjoy that so yeah yeah i know we've uh We've, we've already talked massive amounts, uh, so I will leave it at that. Uh, but Final Fantasy IV, I'm very much enjoying playing it again, and I really like its, its approach to narrative and how party makeup is part of that narrative. Yeah. 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 Conrad, you play anything else this week? No, let's move on. <laughs> cool, let's get some, uh, some quick bits of news out of the way. Um, let's start with the big one. Finally, some news broke before we recorded. Like, right before. Right. So for the last few weeks, we've been talking about, like, the various regulatory bodies in various countries that have been, like, deciding whether they're okay with uh, uh, Xbox acquiring Activision Blizzard King. And one that we'd sort of written off, all all the reporting seemed to suggest they were leaning towards uh, allowing it to go ahead, was the UK's um, Competition and Markets Authority, the CMA. But surprisingly, we got official word today, and the CMA in the UK has decided to block the deal. It is an interesting one, in that their primary concern, if you read through their rejection, is less to do with, like, console gaming and, like, you know, uh, Sony not having access to Call of Duty on physical hardware, things like that. It seems to mostly be to do with fear that this could stifle competition in the growing market that is cloud gaming. Basically, we've seen a lot of pushing in the UK with Microsoft trying to push that like, hey, we're not monopolizing cloud gaming by them pledging to bring Call of Duty to a lot of cloud gaming uh, streaming services. Some of them more well-known than others, some of them less well-known than others, trying to make a really big push of going, hey, for the next 10 years, uh, Call of Duty is going to be streamable on all sorts of streaming services, but the CMA has basically argued, no, Microsoft having access to Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, Overwatch, as things they own, could basically entrench them as a market leader in cloud gaming. Uh, Specifically, they talk about things like the cloud infrastructure for Azure. They have Xbox Game Pass already has a big install base and comes with access to game streaming via xCloud. Right now, Xbox is in a very good position with cloud gaming, and this, you know, the CMA argues, would definitely help cement them in that. The CMA also seems dubious of Xbox's claims that they will commit to 10 years of putting Call of Duty, etc. on these competing platforms. And I think, Conrad, you put it well uh, in the chat we were having before this, which was, it feels like there's a part of this which is, it would be a lot of work to regulate you and make sure, Xbox, that you keep up with this. So maybe we just say, no, you can't do it. <laughs> yeah, like, it, it really feels to be like the regulators look and think, oh, that's going to be a lot of work for us. Maybe we just won't bother. Because if there's one thing regulatory bodies um, within the Imperial Corps love to do, it's not regulate shit. Yeah. They love to not regulate. That's their favorite thing to do is to not do their fucking jobs. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a 
big part of me that senses that they, yeah. you know, and, and there's, there's also reasons for that. Like they are historically, they tend to be underfunded yeah. and they don't have the resources to actually do those sorts of yeah. things. So in a sense, this is them doing their job. Yeah. So, like, we're, we're not, like, pulling this out of nowhere. Like, specifically, the CMA does talk about, like, these 10-year deals with other cloud gaming companies. Their worry is, like, they could contain loopholes and we would have to do ongoing enforcement. Let me find the quote. There are significant risks of disagreement and conflict between Microsoft and cloud gaming service providers, particularly over a 10-year period in a rapidly changing market. Accepting Microsoft's remedy would inevitably require some degree of regulatory oversight by the CMA, by contrast, preventing the merger would effectively allow market forces to continue to operate and shape the development of cloud gaming without this regulatory in intervention. So yeah, they do literally say, hey, it would take work to make you do the thing you've promised to do, whereas telling you you can't do it, we don't have to, we don't, we literally just don't have to oversight you if we do that. But hey, you know, whatever gets us there, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. You know, I, I think that this merger is a terrible idea for the industry as a whole i think it's a terrible idea for consumers um and ultimately it not happening is is the best case scenario for everybody um and it's nice to see the cma kind of recognizing that now obviously it's going to be appealed and this isn't the yeah. end of this. We're going to continue to hear about it. Um, but I'm I'm grateful that it, the responsibility to stop this isn't just going to fall entirely on the FTC now here in the States. Yes. Because I, I can't fucking trust them at all. Yeah, I genuinely thought they were going to be the, like, the only remaining holdout and, you know, that... Seeing that someone else has rejected the deal might put them in a position of, yeah, maybe, maybe we stand alongside that, but... Or maybe we just don't have to say anything yeah. and piss off U.S. companies. That's, like, that's that, also true. It, it works out much better for us politically in this country for you over there to say it can't happen. Yeah. Well, see, here's the thing. You, you're probably very right, because if you look at a lot of like Activision Blizzard King's messaging around fighting against this, it is very specifically like, hey, UK economy you're gonna be punished for this like it's it's weirdly vindictive we're going to punish your economy stuff um so like there is a internal email that kotick sent out today that uh we can summarize a little bit of here but it talks about like um at a time when the fields of machine learning and artificial intelligence are thriving we know the uk market would benefit from microsoft's uh, bench strength in both domains as well as our ability to put those technologies to use immediately by contrast if the cma's decision holds it would stifle investment competition and job creation throughout the uk gaming industry and what he's kind of getting at here is a thing he keeps hinting at um as as does uh uh, Activision Blizzard King's EVP of Corporate Affairs, uh, Lulu Cheng, uh, also talks about like they're trying to frame this as, oh UK, you're gonna t you're gonna say no to this. Well, fuck you. We're not investing in jobs in your country anymore. Lulu's statement uh, on Twitter reads. The CMA's report today is a major setback for the UK's ambitions to be a tech hub, and we will work with Microsoft to reverse it on appeal. This report is also a disservice to UK citizens who face increasingly dire economic prospects, and we will need to reassess our growth. 
Like, they're just straight-faced going, oh, the UK economy's in the shitter. What a shame we're going to have to withdraw our plans to, like, bring jobs to your country. What a fucking shame. It's, like, weirdly vicious. You can't threaten us. You can't threaten us. There's very little left for this country to sink into. And we already know the Tories are going to do it anyway. Like, we're at the point where we are hitting bedrock. The floor is so fucking low. And Sunak's already getting a diamond tip drill to see if we can get further than that. Activision not opening a fucking office in Leeds is not going to make anything fucking better. But... Activision Blizzard King says global innovators, large and small, will take note that despite its all its rhetoric, the UK is clearly closed for business. <laughs> yeah, we are. We already are. It's not a threat. We're fucked. Yeah. Well, the alternate view is they'll look at this and they'll say, oh, the UK is a market where we might actually be able to compete long term. Yeah. Come on, guys, you're not the only fucking game in town. Well, yeah, yeah. I think the other problem, though, with that is um, who wants to work here? No one. There's no fucking trade agreements. There's no fucking economy left. Sorry, I. my one yeah. contribution for, for this whole discussion was I was going to stay silent throughout and then just say lol at the end <laughs> for comic effect. But yeah. threat... Bobby Kotick threatening to to rob Britain of prospects is such a toothless fucking threat. It's got less teeth than the average British household has an income. Fuck's sake. <laughs> but you wouldn't know. That's the other thing. Yeah. He's a billionaire. He, he has no fucking idea. He has idea. no sense of what the economy's doing. The only British people he knows are the fucking, are like literal fucking nobles and shit. Like, I, I get a lot more fucking southern when I start talking about British politics. They're fucking nobles and shit. <laughs> like, but, you know, yeah. he can't relate. It's certainly not a threat to, like, anyone with an energy bill. Yeah. Um, Obviously, that's not who he's trying to threaten. No. But if he's threatening to, like, fuck up the country, again, not a threat to the authorities who are deliberately doing it. Yeah. If anything, it's not a threat. He's just offered to lend a hand. Yeah. Sake. Um, we got one other news story that's just, like, a quick nice one to end on. Um, all right, this is what just one that's interesting to me. Horizon Forbidden West uh, had a little update recently that added some accessibility stuff, and there's one thing they added that, like, I've never seen a game do before, and, like, maybe it's been done before, but it's certainly not common, is they added a Thalassophobia mode, uh, which is fear of deep, dark, open water. That's something my wife would very, very much appreciate. It's not going to be enough to change things, like, to, 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 you know, fix this for everyone who plays, but that game does have a lot of, like, swimming around in kind of murky water. And this mode, among other things, makes the bottom of the body of water you're in ripple with a sort of pink wave that goes over it and shows the topography. So you can very see clearly see where the bottom of the body of water you are in is. So that it doesn't 
look like a just, that's just the void below me while I swim. There's a couple of other little tweaks that it does, but yeah, I appreciate seeing a game try and implement something like this. Like, it may not be perfect, and there may be, like, better implementations that could be done going forward, but we've seen stuff like arachnophobia modes before, and those are becoming a little more common. It's nice to see other somewhat common phobias being recognised as things of like, hey, maybe there's stuff we can implement to help other people with phobias play our game that centres around mechanics that might be to do with that phobia. So that's just... That's just neat. That's the neat um, thing. Yeah. yeah. You can breathe indefinitely underwater so you don't have to worry about drowning if you're afraid, if you've got this fear. And it improves visibility a bit. It makes the water a bit less cloudy. These are all things that are little helpful things that might just help someone have a better time with the game. But yeah, I think that's it well, for I, today. Well, I, I actually have a couple of other things that Ooh, I what do you think got? What have you merit mentioned. Conrad, drop in a Columbo. Yeah. Just one more thing. Did you hear about Magic the Gathering this week? Oh, I wasn't <laughs> yeah. I wasn't sure whether we should put this on here because it's not video gamesy, but yes, I am aware of a, this story. A lot of people have been bringing this one <laughs> yeah, to my yeah. yeah, so for those who aren't aware, Wizards of the Coast sent a couple of investigators from the Pinkertons <laughs> to go and visit a YouTuber who had received some unreleased cards. Uh, yeah, do you want to explain what the Pinkertons are for people who might not know? Uh, the Pinkertons are... Um, uh, they're, they're cops before we had cops. They, they exist to break up unions, to uh, subjugate the working class. Um, they are a private investigation firm that has uh, been used historically for those purposes and continue to be used to intimidate uh, anybody who isn't inclined to go along with the large business interests that pay them. Um, and basically, based on the reports here, uh, a couple of guys showed up at this guy's house whose wife answered the door and said, hey, there's a couple of large men here to see you about some magic cards. And uh, they demanded that the items be returned to Wizards of the Coast. Um, apparently... This was some sort of distribution mistake. Yeah. Somehow, and, and, and I don't know where the mistake lays, but this guy was trying to buy Yu-Gi-Oh cards. Mm. But these Yu-Gi-Oh cards have a very sim. This expansion has a somewhat similar name to a Magic expansion that's coming out. And somehow their distributor that they were buying the cards from acquired these, received these magic cards one way or another and sent them to him thinking that they were the Yu-Gi-Oh cards. I think that's how this went down. My understanding from like having spoken to a couple of people who do like card, card stuff is that it seems like there's a couple of places where this could have happened, but stock does sometimes arrive a bit early before the launches of new sets purely to make sure everyone has their yes. stuff ready for things like pre-launch, uh, like the week before launch tournaments, things like that. Um, and at one of these one of these points in the chain, either the distributor or some uh, local game store or something, someone just had a momentary uh, disconnect and, and got two packs muddled up. And obviously and, yeah. this merits sending out a couple of goons to knock on someone's door and scare yeah. them into giving it back. But again, 
it's not like this person like went out of their way to get an unreleased product. They paid for a product and the wrong thing showed up and they were like, huh. Hey, look at this, this thing. Isn't out, this thing that isn't out yet just got shipped to me. I, what am I going to do? Not open it? This is cool. Yeah, it, it's... So they, they sent the muscle to him. It, it pretty fucking ridiculous and infuriating and fuck Hasbro. Yeah. When you couple it with what Nintendo's been doing as yeah. well, like this, there is an increased normalization of the idea that these companies will reach into your home. They will chase you and yeah. find you, and you should be afraid. That's the message, mm-hmm. ultimately. It's what I discussed on the Gymquisition this week uh, when I talked about Ninterra Tactics. It is terror tactics. It's a campaign of fear. Yep. But I know we like to end on a positive note. That's a, a goal no, no, it's, we've set forth. It's an important story to bring up, and I am denied about popping it on here. Um, so yeah, there we go. We did it. We did it. We did it. We did, we did we did one. So Laura, can you tell um everyone about your work and, and where they can see it? Uh yeah, you can find me at Laura K Buzz pretty much everywhere on the internet. Got that good unified branding. Laura K Buzz on Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, TikTok, Patreon, that's the one that pays the bills. Look out for the Access Ability Summer Showcase taking place on June 9th at 4 p.m. UK, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific. Uh, working really hard on getting that ready. I'm super excited about it. Uh, Conrad, what about you? Where are you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at Conrad Zimmerman on Twitter and Instagram. You can hang out with me live on Twitch at twitch.tv slash thatconradzimmerman. You can buy all sorts of anti-capitalist propaganda from me at mercenarycreative.com. And everything I do online gets supported through Patreon at patreon.com slash fistshark. And you know who else has a Patreon? James Stephanie Sterling. <gasps> that is correct. Patreon.com slash Jimquisition. Uh, that's where you can find, um, well, the Jimquisition for one and uh, this podcast and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I've not been streaming in a while just because my schedule is all over the place, but I do uh, stream at twitch.tv slash Jim Sterling. Uh, my next upcoming wrestling date is... Uh, I think it's Effie's Big Gay Brunch. Uh, May 12th, Liverpool, Effie's Big Gay Brunch. Um, definitely, if you can get to that, come along. Um, Effie is uh, just, he puts on a great show. Um, it's going to be the first time I've, I've seen him in years because uh, we used to run in the same circles when I was in America. Um, so I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a really, really good show. It's going to be pro- probably the queerest wrestling show uh, you could hope to um attend outside of june 10th pride of the ring 2 in blackpool which i'm also at and will also be very gay so that is that thank you all so much for uh listening and supporting and we will see you next week bye bye